Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. Now we have a special couple of guests on the show today. Listeners to our episodes about QE for the people will remember that we briefly mentioned modern monetary theory as a new perspective on how economics works and I talked about getting some MMT speakers on the show to explore that in more detail. Now, I was lucky enough to get the hosts of the MMT podcast, Patricia Pino and Christian Riley, who have interviewed many of the founding scholars and the most active economists in MMT as part of that brilliant podcast about which I've learned a lot from MMT just by listening to that. Now, we had a very, very wide ranging discussion. They were incredibly generous with their time, which I'm grateful for. As a result, I've split that episode into two episodes. The first deals with a bit of a background of MMT, exploring the historical and anthropological question, where does money come from, and some of the consequences that flow from that. And the second episode, which is longer, deals with the consequences of modern monetary theory for our society. Some ideas of how it could be used to run economies more effectively and solve many of the biggest problems that we face in the world. And it's therefore slightly more political, so there is a content warning there if you don't want to hear any discussion of politics. But I think really you should, because as we discuss in those episodes, regardless of which end of the political spectrum you come from, having a real understanding of how the actual economy works is crucial so that you can actually be an informed voter and an informed, engaged person engaging in the uh, the social and political economy that we all have to live in. So I think regardless of where you sit on that spectrum, it's important. Now, I realise that this podcast is not primarily an economics podcast, and it's never been billed as such. And I don't think that we're going to have that many economics episodes coming after this, by the way. But I have been convinced, especially recently, that so many of the concerns that we have been talking about recently, this intersection between technology, inequality and global catastrophic risks, the necessity of dealing with climate change and so much else in the world, is that it is necessary to have a deeper understanding of economics, which is in the background of so much that's going on in the world. MMT, to my mind, when it's properly interpreted and described, makes some points that the classical understanding of economics just misses out on. And even if you disagree with it, I think it's a fascinating area. I have certainly been fascinated by learning more about it, and I hope that you find our conversations here valuable. As ever, if not, if you think I should uh, abandon all this stuff and and put it into a different podcast, if, if that's your opinion, or alternatively, if you like the sort of things that we're doing, expanding the range of topics that we cover here, you can always get in touch with me via the contact form on physicspodcast.com and let me know what you think. Or, you know, you can just wait a few days and we'll have a different episode available for you on a different subject. Just don't ask for your money back because podcasts are free. Without further ado, then, the second part of the interview. So getting back to the consequences of this for sort of society in general, which I think is the really sort of interesting thing and why we're all interested in this so much, alongside, of course, actually understanding how the economy works as a system, which is kind of important because we all do live in it. Um, if if the government effectively can't run out of its own money, then, which we've said, and if anyone doesn't believe me, just look at what's happened with the coronavirus, where they've demonstrated that they can't run out of their own money. And it's certainly not constrained by the tax revenues they took in in the previous year as you or my spending might be constrained by the amount of wages we got in the previous year, for example, plus what we can borrow. Um, if, if the government can't run out of its own money, and we say it can't, then the only practical limit to its spending should be the level of inflation that we're getting in the economy. Obviously, if they pay everyone salaries of millions and millions of pounds a day, then the currency will quickly become worth less. So instead of focusing on the balance between government incomes through through taxes versus expenditure and treating it like a, a monthly accounting spreadsheet, I guess, we should be looking at something like the balance between employment, economic growth and inflation. And the things people should really be concerned about is this thing, inflation, um, which is a, a question of whether the government is basically putting enough money into the economy or not. 
And it seems to me like the MMT argument is that really our limit to spending should be set by the inflation in the economy and the rate that that is at and shouldn't have anything to do with the tax revenue that's that's sort of come in uh, to the government beforehand. So first off, is that a fair argument? And secondly, let's talk about inflation. What what drives it and, and how does it limit spending? I think um, I think that's a natural kind of next place where people go whenever whenever they accept that okay the government is a currency issuer and um, and it can never run out of pounds the UK government and the US government can never run out of dollars the next the next thing they always shout is oh inflation and Zimbabwe and Venezuela and etc and mm-hmm. um, and then you you get to the to the fact that a lot of people really have don't have a really good understanding of what inflation is or what it's caused by and the 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 MMT take would be that you have um, uh, you can spend up to the resources that you have. So um, and uh, taxation and you know removing money from the economy is a way of controlling inflation. Now people, I think a lot of people interpret this as almost saying that oh okay so you go crazy and you spend on things and you pay people money and then when you see inflation growing then you tax and you slow inflation down and I think they've got that wrong because um, if you are a government and say you want to uh, build a bridge somewhere um, the first thing the first question that you'll ask is are there people available? to do this job are is there you know a uh, workforce able to do this job now and if there is then you spend the money that resources are available there is very little risk of inflation if there isn't you know the government has two choices it can either um, um tax to kind of reduce the number of um of workers undertaking other other jobs in the private sector you know to to um to move resources from the private sector into the government so that it can build that bridge or it can um it can compete against the private sector and outbid the private sector and say well I'm going to pay builders a lot more money so they can build me this bridge you know obviously the second option is more likely to create inflation because you are will you know the government is increasing the prices that it's paying for workforce so it's something that you consider preemptively whenever you are doing um, spending. And this is something that I think um, Stephanie makes that point uh, constantly on Twitter and uh, and that other economists don't get. And I think part of the issue is that we have, over the last three decades, we have had policy which has prioritized inflation control to the point of Nothing else, you know, everything is support, else is subordinate to the idea that we need to uh, control inflation, control the value of money, um, even at the expense of unemployment. You know, we're, we're more willing to accept that people are going hungry than we are about taking the risk of generating some inflation. And I think, well, that, that those set of priorities is wrong. And, um, and also it has to it comes from the fact that we have such little understanding of what actually causes inflation. And we have become obsessed with this idea that, you know, all you have to control inflation is interest rates. And as you know, interest rates are a very blunt tool. You don't, you know, they're holding a carrot in, in, in front of investors and hoping that they behave in the way that you want them to behave. There are no guarantees for this. And and that's all that we've narrowed it down to, really, in this idea that, um, you know, the market decides what 
how many people should be employed and and, and all we have is that these really indirect tools and um so I think MMT adds a lot to the understanding of inflation that we have, and, and there's really nothing else like it. But just in in this case, so we should talk about this idea that taxation is kind of destroying the pounds or the, the mm-hmm. dollars or the tokens yep. that the government has pushed out into the wider economy. And in that sense, you can use taxation to control inflation by taking some of that money out of circulation mm-hmm. uh, and putting it back into the government's kind of imaginary uh, you know, ability to generate as much money or as little money as it wants. Um, and then, of course, the the other lever that uh, a government informed by MMT would have to control inflation would be what it pays for goods and services, which, as you've pointed out with your bridge analogy, is is another thing that they could do. Um, and we'll, we'll get on to the, the universal jobs guarantee idea in a bit as well, I think. But uh, Christian, did you have something to add to that? When, when Stephanie Kelton talks about this in her book, The Deficit Myth, is she goes, how let's let's look at how we deal with inflation now look at the situation we've got we've got yes the government can't run out of money it can either spend too much and there's inflation you know that is the evidence of a government overspending or it spends too little and there's unemployment and the government generally go well you know unemployment doesn't matter how big it gets governments don't lose their jobs over that inflation that's what gets, you know, that's what that's that, you know, that's what makes politicians lose their jobs. So, um, you know, that they are more concerned with inflation than they are with unemployment. So they always err on spending too little or making sure there's too little spending power in the economy to give everybody a job. So the way let's go back to Warren Mosley's analogy with the business cards, say he's got a classroom of 50 people. You know, and he spends 50 and he taxes 50 and, you know, there's 50 hours of work done cleaning the floor. Then he's got a clean floor. Everybody's got a job. No problem. You know, if he if he uh, you know, the tax on the whole economy is 40. uh, Sorry, if the tax on the whole economy is 50 and he only spends 40 because he only needs 40 hours work, you've got unemployment. You know, you're now going to have people looking for work that pays in his business cards that can't find it because he hasn't spent enough. And so he's got two choices at that point. He can lower taxes down to 40, which would be rational, uh, and then the unemployment would go away. Or, you know, he could then spend an extra 10 on something else. I don't know, maybe the windows need cleaning or something like that. And so, so you know, that's a very basic model of of how it works. But, you know, countries... Are a bit more complicated and it is impossible to target a precise number of pounds that is going to deliver full employment without uh you know accelerating inflation so what they do is they say to the central bank target an interest rate make sure you don't create inflation and that's it so they sit around thinking, all right, how much unemployment can we get the population to live with? You know, they just they, they adjust the interest rates up and down and they think and it's called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the NIRU. And um, it's built in to their plan of like, OK, well, how many million people or how many hundreds of thousands of people are we going to leave in this precarious situation? And it's not just the unemployed themselves. It's the people on the edge of unemployment or in the gig economy and things like that. You know, we've all got this precarious existence because this is the way they do things. They have to ensure some level of unemployment to fight inflation. So they use unemployment to fight inflation. And that that's it. You've only, you've only got that choice when you're the monopoly issuer. 
you need a buffer stock policy uh, to uh, to stabilize the value of your currency. So, you know, gold is a gold buffer stock policy. You know, a gold standard is a gold buffer stock policy. But what we use is human beings. We go, right, it's a human being buffer stock policy. So we move. Uh, people in and out of this pool of unemployed labor people having a you know people having a miserable life uh you know and we pay them just enough so they don't die you know some of them do um but they're you know they're you know they're hoping not everybody will die because if if everybody that doesn't have a job just dies then we'll be at full employment and we'll get inflation what mmt is saying is well what if that buffer stock was an employed buffer stock and we're not saying that all those people who go on the dole, now you've got to work to get your dole. The dole is still there, but we're saying we're going to offer everybody that's in that pool a job that pays a socially inclusive wage with the kind of benefits that you would imagine in a civilized society or however civilized you want your society to be. Maybe it's, you know, two, three, four weeks holiday. Maybe it's maternity leave, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, this becomes the uh, the benchmark job below which no private sector employer can go in terms of like pay and conditions so it, it puts a floor under the stand under the standard of living and uh and also it sets a it sets a cost of yeah, labor also you know it, it, it? yeah exactly it anchors the value of the currency to the most crucial input which is like human time and endeavor you know and and so so um I've also thought a way I've heard it described that makes it really compelling is to think of, you know, being on universal credit is the job guarantee right now. It is a job, you know, the government will guarantee you this job. You know, you can organize your own workload, but your job is to not get a job, have a miserable life, try and live off what they're giving you. And, uh, you know, that and, and you know, wait for a private sector employer to come along and think. And fight inflation. And about, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sit at home fighting inflation and wait for a private sector employer to offer you like one penny more than you're having, you know, than you're getting in now. Uh, and you know that really favors the you know the the private sector employer who you know thrives on a precarious uh you know the precariat as as they called and we, if if there's a job guarantee in place sorry you can just say you know stuff working at the amazon warehouse where you won't even come and check if i've had a heart yeah, attack yeah. or not and you put an ankle tag on me and see what's going on i'm going to go and work at the the universal jobs guarantee job, which I happen to know is better but than I, this. I always like to lean into the, yeah, I absolutely agree with you, but I always like to lean into the macro of it and go, yeah, ha- you know, you've only got two choices with a, with a, with a fiat currency, which is what we've got. And that, you know, you don't get an NHS without a free fiat currency. You don't get, you know, collectively provisioned things like that. And there's only two choices, an unemployed buffer stock or an employed buffer stock. Anything that's not, you know, guaranteeing, uh, you know, uh, guaranteeing a right to work is uh, is accepting an unemployed buffer stock, and uh, yeah, that's and that's the way we do it now. And and um, that obviously the MMT economists think, well, it just makes way more sense <laughs> to have have that buffer stock yeah. be an employed buffer stock. The other the other thing about the job guarantee is that uh, going back to the subject of inflation is that 
you know, as as the economy contracts, say if there is a, a reduction in private sector activity, then and naturally the the job guarantee would expand, increasing government spending and and kind of stabilizing the whole economy. And 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 vice versa, if there is a boom in private activity and and people are investing a lot, and um, um, then you know the pool of people who are in a job guarantee job they would uh, be hired by private sector employers and uh, and then and then that would naturally reduce government spending so again you have a stabilizing effect so the for mmt the job guarantee becomes what is the equivalent of like what the phillips curve was for neoclassical economics you know is is the is is the uh, mechanism which underpins, which uh, ensures a level of stability within the economy, and on top of that, you have government spending and private spending. It's it's like a big sorry it's it's like a big lever that the government can pull in different directions by, for example, setting the wage or changing what the universal job guarantee people are doing. Um, to to change you know the levels of inflation and so on that you have in the economy. Well, I think I think that the the, the uh, big idea behind the job guarantee and quite an important aspect of it is that the involvement of the central government really ends at funding it, and mm-hmm. uh, and the what the jobs that actually get done in the job guarantee that they get decided by locally, so it's central fun, centrally funded and locally administered. And that idea is important because uh, it's important as well that none of the jobs are in the private sector. So these are not for profit jobs uh, because then you have you have the benefit is twofold. And you have obviously the better income for the people who are taking the jobs, the retention of skills, the participatory outcomes of it. But you also have the kind of the. Uh, the benefit that the job itself is providing to the local economy. And it then gives um, uh, communities the ability to maybe identify issues that are not easily identified centrally and to to maybe, um, you know, uh, try to address issues or experiment with different ways of addressing them um, uh, at, at local level and see, uh, and it gives um, basically, I, I like to think that it gives communities a, a certain degree of economic autonomy and uh, kind of uh, um, running their economies to, to some degree, to, to a much higher degree than they do now. And this idea that then the people who are undertaking the jobs are the ones who are deciding what those jobs are is uh, is one of the things that kind of ensures that those jobs are of a of a certain quality and and, and well remunerated. Um, also, just you know, in case there's people who are kind of more to the centre or centre right listening, um, the private sector employers prefer to employ people who are already working over people who have been unemployed or long term unemployed. So uh, Warren Mosler, again, the founder of MMT, uh, you know, talks about the job guarantee. He calls it a transition job. Because you know he thinks that's a bit more descriptive, uh, depending on your audience. Uh, it's also been known as the employer of last resort as well, and it, it, it's got a, a long history. It goes back to the civil rights movement. It goes back to the to the to the New Deal uh, era as well. Uh, so it's it's not a new uh, demand that people are making on uh, governments. Um, but um, 
Yeah, so so you have these things called bottlenecks, labor bottlenecks. So when the economy picks up, you might still get inflation because the the this buffer stock of humans that have been at home losing skills and you know all, all kinds of skills, you know the soft skills of, of you know the, the stuff that you learn that you don't even know you're learning when you're coming in and showing up for work every day, social stuff. And also, if I can say, just getting depressed in yeah, many cases as well. Yeah. I mean, we we know that there are terrible links for people's long term okay. health. And long-term unemployment, it, it is a it's a sort of waste of human potential in, in more ways than one. You know, for the person themselves, you know, many of us have that dependence on work and a sense of purpose that you know I'm sure a lot of people listening will will know from their own life experience. That that's, that, that's exactly where my political conscience is at too. You know, I I, I agree with everything you that you're saying, and and I know why I think it's a good idea. But I think we're always talking to people who are like uh, you know skeptical about it because they're a bit more you know they've they've drunk the neoliberal kool-aid and i'm just saying that you know that this this is a fact that private sector employers prefer to hire people who are already working so when the economy picks up you might get a bit of inflation because the um the people who like you say are having this miserable life getting depressed losing their skills losing their socialization and stuff they they're not as as liquid they're not as quick to get back into work as they would be if they were if they were working in a, a job guarantee or job doing something. So you know the idea is it's it's there to help people transition back into the private sector uh, when when the private sector picks up again. All the government sector, but I I say private sector because we're presuming that the government sector is the size it wants to be. The government sector understands it, you know, its spending capacity and has decided right that's it. We 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 spent what we're going to spend. And then the other thing I wanted to just weigh in on is that the the job guarantee wage is a fixed wage so that, you know, if the economy uh, and that's how it anchors the value of the currency. So, you know, if it it, obviously when the private sector wants to bid people away from the uh, job guarantee buffer stock of people, um, if the job guarantee wage goes up and tries to compete, with the you know the the private sector to bring them back into the job guarantee you're going to get into that bidding war and that will create inflation so the idea is it's a it's a fixed wage to stabilize the economy and it, and and that's kind of how we do it now where where you know if you lose your job or let's say there's a downturn uh, you know uh, forget coronavirus but let's say there's an economic downturn people lose their jobs so they stop paying income tax and they start claiming unemployment benefits so the government are receiving less and uh and paying out more automatically because of the way we do it now and that's called the automatic stabilizers so so the government deficit goes up automatically to give the economy a soft landing so what we're saying is that automatic stabilizer that happens when people lose private sector employment this is a better buffer stock you know the 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 wages are paid higher than what the dole is and uh you know it's going to make that 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 business cycle um a lot less traumatic you know there's this idea of the nairu non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment well you know the this job guarantee thing is about nibur which is non-accelerating inflation buffer rate of unemployment of employment sorry and 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 the idea is that the Nairu is you have to keep five percent, something like five percent. Maybe if people are feeling crazy, they change four, it depending on the weather. Four percent of people in this buffer stock having a, a miserable life. The MMTists have worked out actually you could probably have it three percent, two percent of people in the Nairu because it's a much more 
uh, liquid buffer stock. So, you know, the, the, the people in, in it are going to be a lot fewer as well. So it is it complements the private sector. So we've we've sort of addressed an imaginary member of the audience who's more to the right wing of us. And I think we sort of have acknowledged that we're all um, probably left of centre politically here. Well, I, I know that there are people like this in my audience, and I always say to them, you know, if you disagree with anything that you hear on the show or that anything that I say, please get in touch, and I'd like to explain it to you. We had an episode that we did on universal basic income. Um, well, explain why I believe it anyway. I don't know whether I'll be able to persuade everyone of my point of view always. But we had an episode on universal basic income, and one of the listeners got in touch and said, you know, I, I don't approve of all of this, uh, you know, government taxing people and uh, redistributing wealth for doing nothing. And from this perspective, I think that actually the universal jobs guarantee that is proposed by um, MMT as as the solution to a lot of these problems is a lot more attractive because it contains within it this idea that, that the government is not giving you money for doing nothing per se. Instead, the government is giving you a, a social yeah. contract, a literal social contract in the form mm-hmm. of an employment contract saying, you know, if you do this work, you will be guaranteed this minimum standard at, at the job. And you'll be guaranteed this minimum standard of life. And I, I wonder if in that sense, it, it, it's not, I mean, the critics of MMT, and I'm sure you guys have heard this lots, will call it magic money tree and say it's all about printing as much money as possible to pay for all sorts of wonderful things. I, I, the, the, the sort of the, the idealized vision that I have of it when it sort of works out is that the cornerstones of a government that's run in a way that's informed by MMT is to reassess the economy. You know, forget budgets, forget deficits, forget interest rates and things. As a monetarily sovereign government that prints its own money, these are sort of arbitrary constraints that you're setting on yourself. And simply say this instead. If we have unemployed people who want to work but can't, and we have socially useful work that needs to be done, the economy is not functioning optimally. And you can't expect the private sector, which is obviously incentivized by the profit motive, to come along and fix that deficit by itself. It won't do that. But what we actually have in the real economy forgetting the world of money completely, is real resources in the form of these people that are being wasted and real problems that need solving. And when the private sector can't allocate those resources to the appropriate problems, the state should step in and do what it takes to make that happen. And that's the sort of social contract that that I think we would want to establish. And, and of course, you can say whether you agree with that or not. And of course, we all know that we do have these problems, whether it's caring for the elderly, which is a huge issue in, in, in the country at the moment, dealing with mental health issues, that's another big issue. Addressing climate change, of course, would be my bugbear as a, as a physicist who looks into this. We know that there's lots of physical things that need to be done. We need to install renewables. We need to install energy efficiency measures. We need to work on this green transition. You know, And, um, and this is the sort of thing where not only a universal jobs guarantee, but also removing some of these kind of quite arbitrary um, fiscal and, uh, yeah, these arbitrary fiscal barriers of, of budgets and deficits, which aren't focusing on inflation, which is the only thing we really need to worry about, um, would, would help us to do. Um, so so that's my rant. But I think from the perspective <laughs> of saying that MMT is not necessarily a left-wing theory, and it's not nor is it a theory that one can simply print as much money as one wants to pay for whatever one wants to do. But instead, it's just changing what you view as the things that are important to control in the economy, that the nature of a functioning economy um, that is working well, and and the role of the state in, in guaranteeing that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, UBI is a, is a very big subject, and, and there are various things that I personally don't like about it. But But you outline it perfectly in the sense that the, one of the big differences between UBI and the job guarantee is that um, 
there are two sides to what makes up for the well-being of a society and for the well-being of, of an employee or a worker. Um, and one of them is to have sufficient, you know, income to to buy the things that they need to live and 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 to live not just survive but live happy lives. Um, and the other hand is to make sure that the goods are out there and the services are out there for those people to enjoy and to actually purchase with these money or or to pr be provisioned to them uh, on a kind of a universal sense. Um, so I've always felt that UBI only takes care of one of those sides. And by ignoring the other side of the equation, which is production, um, how, how do you organize the, the economy? And the economy really are the workers. How do you organize the workers towards a common purpose? And um, of course, you need to provide incomes, but also you need to ensure that those services are out there. So the job guarantee addresses that a lot better, I think. Um, the other aspect as well is it, it, as you say, you know, the UBI can be a lot more divisive than the job guarantee. Um, this idea that um, people um, could, if they wanted to, simply opt out of of the social contract and still enjoy all the benefits that everybody else does. This is something that will grate on a lot of people, and uh, something that actually benefit claimants have unfairly been demonised for uh, for the last few decades if you see all the um, daily mail um and many of the of the newspapers the tabloids um and the job guarantee gives people a claim over production and it, and it kind of meets the worker where they are and it says regardless of, of where you are of of your skill we're going to give you something that is going to be useful for society and also that is going to be good quality employment that is going to give you at the same time income and is going to um so that nobody's surplus right nobody's a burden on everybody else no there's there's this sense that really we're all in this together and that's why um in poll after poll the um job guarantee has always come on top of UBI. And if you see the polls, I think there was one on YouGov not so long ago, you see that the support for job guarantee tends to be higher in, in there is no single demographic where the job grant the, the UBI beats the job guarantee. Um, across classes, uh, across um, you know, cities, uh, across every age, everything you can think of, even political affiliation, a job guarantee is always perceived as fairer. And because of that, I think it's more conducive to a cohesive society. Um, I understand as well kind of the uh, some of the sentiment behind UBI. I understand that a lot of people, what they feel is that, you know, they, they've been they've had crushing jobs for a very long time. And uh, and capitalists have, you know, really taken the piss forgive my french but um you know with with the level of of employment the, the incomes but also the quality of employment that people have been given and i think that there is a, perhaps a natural kind of rejection of the very concept of work not least because they see the uh, tory government kind of weaponizing the the idea of work against them you know there, there is this section of well if you're poor it's because you're not working enough and we know that's not true and um, but they but they say it like that, and they keep repeating, "Work will be your way out of poverty." Keep doing it, keep doing it, and and it just never happens. So they feel disillusioned with the whole system, and they they want a way to just simply opt out of it. And I and I 
kind of empathize with that. But I would suggest that a better approach would be to actually demand that, not, not simply opt out of work, but sim- demand that that work is better. And a big important aspect of that is bringing government back in the equation and um, making sure that, you know, the capitalist, the, the private sector is not the only source of employment. Because I think people go, oh, you, you know, people, UBI is sexy. You know, what, you're just going to give me money to live on? Great. <laughs> you know, it's not hard to sell. And then it, the perception is you've got these people like the MMT people coming in and going, no, you're not allowed to have a UBI. You know, you must work and work, work, work. And, and obviously, it, I don't like to, to, to pit one against the other because, you know, that's really not what's going on. So I'll say it like this. If, you, if we go back to that, that Warren Mosler business card analogy, Warren holds holds up the business card and he goes, you know, I need 50 hours of work. I'm going to spend 50 of these, right? You know, I, I, I am, uh, you know, why did I do this to start with? Is it because I'm just mean and I am trying to just get you to clean the floor? You know, and, and now I'm going to kind of add my own analogy in it. it, it if, if this is a democratic government, you voted for, for a clean floor. So you gave me the permission to do this, right? So now I've got to move resources from the private sector into public sector use. And we do that with a money system. Warren says in the old days, you know, we used to, you'd wake up in a, you know, how do the governments used, used to provision themselves? One way you could do it, you could conquer somewhere and take slaves and they do all the work. Or you could be out drinking one night and wake up with a lump in your head and you're on a boat and now you're in the British Navy. You know, that's how states have provisioned themselves historically. We pretend to be a bit more civilized and we use this money system where we go, okay, we need so much doing. So we then impose a tax. So so the the first thing that happens is in the order of operations is you've got a government that desires to provision itself. It wants roads and soldiers and police and libraries and an NHS and a school system. And how's it going to move resources from private sector use where everybody is to start with? into public sector and it does this thing where it demands taxes paid in a token that only it's allowed to issue and with strong penalties for counterfeiting and now it can pay you to do the things it wants you to do and you know let's pretend we're living in some semblance of a democracy and it's a happy story we voted for these things we wanted schools and libraries and stuff so now you know we're we're happy to to pay our taxes not because it's funding the spending but because it's the mechanism by which government provisions itself right so if you in the first instance when you lay on the tax you've made the entire population unemployed by definition there there are people now looking to work for the thing that you issue and they haven't got it yet now they're unemployed and then you spend the money and they become employed and but you don't spend enough that's what unemployment is you don't you don't or you tax too much out so there's not enough spending power in the economy to give everybody a job it's on the government to fix that the government started it <laughs> yeah so so in terms of like morality or should the government should the nanny state come in and and, and bolster the private sector and, and interfere it's like it, the interference started at the beginning <laughs> the interference started with you know you wanted things doing collectively like an nhs so now we have to have a money system that's how we move resources around and um and so uh, you know, 
to uh, Warren calls it the base case for analysis. You know, presumably I did this because I wanted to give everybody a job. It would be irrational for me not to give everybody a job given that this is how we do things. So, you know, that it kind of, you know, I think that there's a, a strong moral case for everybody, you know, who wants a job. Don't forget the job guarantee is not a demand that everybody goes to work. It's just an offer of work. You, know, you can choose to be unemployed if you want. So it's, you know, it's there to target involuntary unemployment. Um, so, you know, it kind of gets around the morality of it. It's like, the, you know, the government is responding. It's not like you said uh, you know it's not the response it's not the uh it's not on the private sector for for not spending more money in a recession or, or taking out bigger loans it's now you know the private sector spent what it wants to spend and now there's still unemployment so that you know it is on the government to step up because it's the only you know for starters it's responsible for unemployment in the first instance so it, you know it needs to to fix its mistake and then so if we go back to that analogy and we, you know, you tax 50 uh, and you spend, but and you, and then you can hire, you can hire people because people now need the money to pay the tax. Well, what if you just give them the money without working, which is what UBI is? Well, how are you, you know what I mean? How are you going to create a demand? <laughs> you know, exactly. So, so you know, that's one very simple thing about UBI. It's like we're, we're, you're just basically giving them the money to pay the tax and it defeats the whole purpose of the of the exercise. So, so there's that. And then, uh, but, you know, let's just put that to one side. Um, I know that there's not just one UBI plan out there, but let's assume that, when everybody talks about UBI, they mean universal, right? So the one thing that unites all these UBI plans is it's universal. So there's definitely two types of people in an economy. There are people who don't have enough money to live on, and if they can earn it or you give it to them, they'll spend it. And there are people who not only have they had all their needs catered for, they're actually piling money up. And we know this group exists because they're constantly looking for places to shift their money to, to be tax efficient. Or maybe they're trying to invest it so that they can either beat inflation or, or actually, you know, just make money off of investments. So, you know, there's definitely these two groups of people. So if let's take a modest UBI plan like, uh, you know, I think Andrew Yang's was, you know, $1,000 a month or something. Let's say it's £1,000 a month. It's twelve grand a year. Okay. You take over a 10-year timeline, you've got the person who needed it to live on spending it all so that their wealth has not gone up. You know, they haven't died, but their wealth has not gone up. The person who, who's got more money and owns several properties and investment properties, you've just given them. 240 grand over 10 years and don't forget ubi is a permanent program so you've got the, the people on the lower echelon who are no richer and then the people who are already quite rich you've now given them a quarter of a million pounds over 10 years <laughs> you know you've given them a house or two houses basically i really hope anybody that that's thinking about ubi can see what i'm saying here that there's no way that's not going to deepen wealth inequality yeah, it's going to stop the person that spends the UBI from dying. But, you know, at the top end, it's just going to completely widen the wealth gap of the have-nots and the have-yachts, you know. On, on that 
note as well. Um, if you think about it, and, and this is a hypothetical UBI where there is no job guarantee present, um, um, you know, you can give people an income, but you're not really creating jobs. Um, and the levels of UBI that have been proposed have been nowhere near um, what anybody might need to to live a dignified life. So it's very likely that you still get people who are on UBI and who, who are still desperate for employment and who um, therefore the employers or the private sector still have the upper hand as sole providers of employment. And But then you have people who have some income so they're really just looking for a little bit more in order to make ends meet. So in that way, the UBI might work as a, as a kind of a wage subsidy in much the same way that the furloughing income is doing and, and, and simply allow employers to um, get employ pay, pay their employees less while well, extracting a profit from them. And that as well might contribute to further inequality as they get to get uh, keep a bigger share of the pie. You know, hopefully people can see that it, it, it deepens wealth inequality. Um, and often when you start picking holes in the plan, like like we, we just have, um, then people start going, well, you know, maybe, you know, with all, yeah, it's a universal thing, but it gets clawed back through taxes and stuff like that. So that at the very top end, they don't get it. And then it's like, well, great. Well, we're, now we're talking about basic income. We're talking about de facto basic income, not universal basic income. So it's the you in UBI that uh, people who kind of get the macro consequences are bothered about. You know, but in no way do we do we want to get in the way of the government giving people money to survive, <laughs> or you know, or, or even God forbid, have a better life. <laughs> but but it's the the fact that you know when you give it to people who are just able to invest it. You know, think about giving people you know people who've got investments all over the place and are not living hand to mouth a quarter of a million pounds over 10 years you know that there's this kind of straw man thing that people chuck at mmt is which is oh it's just print money print money spend you know spend on whatever whatever you want and really i like to remind people that only policy prescription in mmt is the job guarantee we are just proposing that you know everything else is descriptive so we're going given that the that the that money comes into being and flows through the economy and exits the economy in this way. We only want to spend money to enhance people's lives. And how do we do that? Well, you know, in the Thatcher era, there was this idea of trickle down economics of like, well, yeah, if we give it to people who are really quote unquote good with money, it will trickle down and eventually everybody will have a job. If we just give out money willy nilly and, you know, people who are bad with money, then that won't result in any unemployment. And um, I like the analogy that trickle down economics is like, uh, you know, you want to fill your bathtub so you go to the flat upstairs and you fill their bathtub and you wait for it to overflow and you hope that some of it drips into your bathtub we're saying you know the, the simplest just, you know just, just fill the yeah, exactly the, the 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 simplest route between two points is a straight line we want to eliminate the involuntary unemployment just eliminate the involuntary unemployment and that's how we end up not spending more than the economy needs and create an inflation. We're just mm -hmm. we're just buying up what the private sector doesn't want. Mm -hmm. So there just a couple of things I point out here. One is to say that Christian, your objection to UBI is in some ways quite similar to the objection that I believe the Bank of England itself has levied against quantitative easing, which we have talked about in previous episodes of this show, where you know a lot of the QE money has ultimately gone to people who didn't really need it or, you know, 
the the argument is that it's gone into inflating asset prices, so to speak. Um, and people, you know, have had their government bonds bought back off them, and they've used that money to buy back shares and so on. And so it's caused a detachment, uh, which has now become extreme, um, between the stock market and the real economy, um, which is something that we're sort of continuing to see happen at the moment. And then when you look at things from that perspective, you think, well, it's a, it's almost a policy that defends the interests of people who have assets, and that is something that the Bank of England itself has also, you know, sort of admitted, and is therefore leading to further inequality uh, in the system. Um, I, I had a few things I wanted to say about the UBI as well, um, just quickly, which is, first off, I always think about these things about like how I would sell them to my dad, um, who uh, is, is willing to get... Ex- <laughs> That's a really ex- good tip. Give, give us a picture. Yeah, well, I mean... Which, which, which newspaper does your dad read and then we'll know? I couldn't, I couldn't possibly speculate. What I will say <laughs> is that he, he, does, he does work extraordinarily hard and uh, you know, has, has done so for his whole life and therefore is exercised about the, the, the nature of the taxes that are being spent. Um, uh, and I think... Every taxpayer should be also as well, um, but I think it would be you know much easier to sell the more centrist concept of um, a jobs guarantee where you can see the nature of the social contract and putting something back in versus a UBI. Now, with respect to the UBI, the other thing I would say is that the guy we interviewed on it, um, Stuart Lansley, who does work for Compass and so on, his his version of the UBI was not quite a case of giving everyone an equal amount of money because you balance it out by tax changes and the whole thing is demonstrated on the UK economy to make it progressive rather than regressive. So in a sense, it's just, um, it, it's sort of, it's sort of a, it's, it's a welfare state where you allow people to choose what they'll spend their money on because they know best what it is that they need. And I think that's a slightly separate argument to the type of UBI that a lot of people envision, which is a sort of UBI where, you know, there's an automation apocalypse and all of the jobs vanish and, this is certainly why people in Silicon Valley seem to love it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm suspicious of it, because I, I no longer trust that these people have society's best interest in mind. It seems to me like their view of a UBI is that this will be the thing that they can shift onto governments and say, OK, well, it's the government's responsibility to ensure that all of the people who we've made unemployed by replacing them with apps still have money to buy iPhones. And that's like the, the sort of Silicon Valley perspective on a, on a UBI. Um, and I, I think that... That perspective of a UBI relies on you taking into account this idea that the automation is going to come and, and steal all the jobs, which which I know is not something that a lot of people agree with. And, you know, uh, I think that's another two hours that we could talk about, to be honest, until the cows come home. But I think it's just interesting to point out that, of course, the UBI means so many different things to so many different people, um, depending on the level you set it at and what other sorts of benefits that it replaces and so on. And I think that it's too easy to sort of caricature and pigeonhole all of those um, into into individual uh, sort of yeah into I guess uh, policy prescriptions that aren't really what the people involved are saying. So I would say that from my perspective anyway, there's types of UBI where it takes on uh, a redistributive role, um, a bit like Milton Friedman's negative income tax or something like that, which is something that he had proposed um, at one point. Um, that, yeah, that yeah. makes sense to me. I, I was yeah. going to say actually, didn't so, sorry. Yeah. yeah, Milton Friedman offered that, yeah. didn't he? Um, uh, but didn't he speak as well about a, I believe it was Milton Friedman who spoke about kind of creating a society of elite producers and basically an underclass of Well, consumers. that's the society that I think a lot of people are interested in creating or that a lot of people feel that we're headed towards or, you know, wouldn't mind us heading towards because they think they'll be on one side of it. Um, and I think the advantage of the 
universal jobs guarantee is that you know the people will say that a UBI has dignity at its core because everyone has what's necessary to survive but you could make the same claim for a universal jobs guarantee you know if it's done properly and um i mean yeah one of the other things i did want to to talk about as well is you know that we have we have mentioned already um david graeber of course who recently um died an untimely death at the age of 59 and this 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 show for listeners is gonna um do a tribute episode to him because it was reading uh his essay and then his book on bullshit jobs that i think is something that more people should be aware of um and that in, in i won't spike that but in short one of the questions that bullshit jobs is trying to answer is if the private sector is so efficient at creating uh meaningful important employment for everyone how come most people think their jobs are bullshit and can't see the social value of them? I come back to the coronavirus crisis again because I think that, as you guys both said, the 2008-9 financial crisis was a moment of uh, economic interest uh, interest in economics awakening for you. Um, I was sort of 14 or 15 at the time, so you know I wasn't really paying that much attention to it. Um, but I think this coronavirus crisis is going to be the next thing for a, for a new generation of people to start thinking about how the economy works and whether the picture that they have of it is correct as as people can see and and also just the sanity of the things that are going on so i mean the classic example here that we have in the uk at the moment that's come up recently is um the government was encouraging a lot of people to go back to the offices and the sort of popular idea is that this is motivated mm-hmm. because the retail sandwich industry um, in in the UK, prêt manger and chains like this will will go bankrupt uh, if no one is there to eat sandwiches at this restaurant. And it sort of shows that there is a. I mean, I think candidly, we would probably all agree that it's more to do with the fact that if no one ever goes back to the offices again, now that people have discovered that many of their jobs can be done from home, um, it may. Uh, <laughs> prevent the ability of landlords in the cities to collect as much rent as they used to on the properties that they own and that's more um what they're concerned about and that it is more politically palatable to say that you're trying to save the job of the poor old sandwich maker in prep because that's a more politically relatable (laughs) person but we we now have this ludicrous system whereby there's been a big shock to the economy everything has changed the private sector is inflexible the neoclassical model of economics where people can just run around from one job to another uh, seamlessly and they're always being employed by a perfect private sector is evidently wrong. There's masses of socially useful work that we need people to be doing in various different fields, climate change, but also pandemic response, where it would be really useful to have a big workforce that we could rely on for that. Um, it's a deflationary crisis, so people are spending less because they don't have the money. And therefore, the government actually has leeway to spend more. Um, I was going to say print money, but the government has leeway to spend more to counteract the deflation. And you just see how much better um, a, a world where we we weren't all subscribing to this dogma that only the private sector can employ people to do socially useful things and that it, it should dominate above all things because the reality is that it's useful for some things and not useful for others and this crisis i think is illustrating a lot of the flaws mm-hmm. in that and i think that people will see the absurdity of their government kind of spending lots of lots of money to 
encourage people to go and buy sandwiches in Pret and so on when they no longer want to buy sandwiches in Pret as evidence of the fact that there have to be sort of better ways and the universal jobs guarantee being one that I think a lot of people could agree has merit to direct our labour and our economic activity away from the type of jobs that David Graeber would call bullshit and towards the kind of work that people would find a lot more satisfying because they can wake up in the morning and think, well, at least I know why I'm doing this. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 is, that is a rant again. Um, but I, I just think... I loved it. Uh, yeah, I loved it too. <laughs> I think we were, we were talking about this yesterday, weren't we, Christian? Um, and I think, I think uh, that, you know, David Graeber is being proven right at the moment because um basically we've discovered uh, that during the crisis and and you know we uh, let's let's keep in mind that this has unprecedented just to use that word that has been going around a lot um and you know, nobody really knew what was going to happen um every uh, there were some fears that there might be inflation because if you keep too many workers at at home, then things don't get produced, and then um, there may be shortages, and therefore leading to inflation. Uh, are we going to have enough food? You know, what if farmers get ill, etc. And um, you know, if anything, this crisis has shown that there is an awful lot of things that really were not really missing at that. A lot of jobs that are pretty, pretty bullshit, like uh, David would say. And and yet, the essentials, or what is you know, things that we have. Um, uh, food and 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 access to to basic services, all that are some of the most undervalued jobs in the whole economy, and it just goes to show just how upside down things are, how overpaid things that we don't need or we don't miss are, and how underpaid things that we cannot live without are. And if anything, um, you know, this is a time when the government has to step in and 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 say, okay, well, you know, what if we offered Pret, <laughs> Pret employees a job guarantee paying more than they ever were paid by Pret? Um, you know, they're not saying that. What, what they are nervous about is that the whole crisis will cause more people to demand more government intervention. So they're eager to go back to things as they were, you know, to, to keep the illusion that the market is all that we have and, and the market is the best uh, means of allocating resources. So they don't want to... Uh, provide us with too many things that we like because they are concerned that we are going to, you know, that that their game is going to be up and that once you give something, you're not going to be able to take it away. So I think I think this crisis, you know, if anything, is a great opportunity for to to incorporate something as a job guarantee and and demand that, you know, and 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 say the government can do more. It's not just the market. That we and we, we, we make podcasts. We listen to podcasts. One thing I've noticed listening to podcasts recently is the number of government advertisements that you get in the UK. And apologies again if this is UK centric. People around the world will know that your own governments, <laughs> um, if they're monetarily sovereign, have this sort of set of decisions facing them that they can, that they can deal with. Um, the, the, the adverts until very recently were saying back to normal. Let's get back to normal. We're all going to go back to normal. Let's all just... Pre- Pretend that Normal it didn't happen. Was awful. And if you, you know, look at the YouGov surveys that have been done of people, there's 97% of people, you know, there's ridiculous consensus, consensus that we don't get for virtually anything in this country. People saying that they don't want to go back to normal because they see there were flaws with the old system. And the the sort of the, the lack of uh, imagination and compassion and sort of willingness to think big 
in solution to the crisis because you know we all remember the great depression required big thinking to get out of it on the part of fdr and he's now you know well known well considered to be one of the you know better presidents that the united states had and all this sort mm-hmm. of thing and uh, i think it, it, it we know that people don't want to go back to normal we know that what was normal wasn't necessarily working we know that there's plenty of socially useful jobs that people could be doing we know that money is not a constraint for the government in the way that people thought it was providing inflation is under control and you're sort of left thinking once all of this information is out there and once people have this perspective on what's going on it it's the sort of thing that is going to build pressure for people to say well what's your solution to this beyond everyone going back to work in prep because this disruption could also and this crisis could also be an opportunity as many people have said and we know of course that there are people who will view a crisis as an opportunity from a sort of disaster capitalism sense as in we can come in and you know uh use the fact that we have uh capital and and access to resources and so on to manipulate this crisis for our own ends and we see that happening um with some of the sort of stock market excesses and the the profiteering that's happened during this pandemic which i think has been pretty uh you know revolting in certain places to see um but we also know that a crisis can be an opportunity in the sense of there's all this dislocation a lot of people have lost jobs that it turns out were not pivotal or, or useful and that they may not have been enjoying and we know that there's all these problems to solve in terms of nhs social care um mental health cleaning litter off the streets <laughs> and the combating climate change which is going to be the work of this century and it it seems very lacking in imagination that people aren't looking to view this as more of an opportunity to solve those problems and instead want to return to a, a status quo that that wasn't working for a lot of people as as we've seen with Brexit and Trump and so on and the the democratic convulsions that have been uh, gripping societies on either side of the atlantic for the last 5 years one thing you can say about those big votes is that it demonstrated that the status quo wasn't working for a lot of people and they don't want to go back yeah yeah you just put me in mind of um one of our favorite guests that we have on the MMT podcast uh John Harvey uh from Texas uh, he's born in Britain but uh you you're not supposed to tell people that because <laughs> he's very texan <laughs> but uh, he he has a uh, he's he's really funny he's a great he's just a great to chat to but he he has this thing where he goes look if, if you've got a social problem there's a job on the other end of that you know so mm-hmm. you know let's yeah. you know that that should cut through the whole you know oh there's nothing to do you know the robots have taken all our jobs um the way i've heard it described is you know you know a few hundred years ago it needed like 95% of us growing food otherwise we'd starve then now we only need like 1 or 2% of humanity growing food to feed all of us and uh, you know then everybody was in manufacturing and then automation came along and we went from you know 70% of people in manufacturing jobs down to i don't know 8 or 9% and you know we've got all the gizmos we need because of automation and that's how come we've got a service economy that's how come we're we're able to have doctors and lawyers and an nhs and so because we're not out there you know you know operating spinning jennies and stuff like that you know and or, or growing food so automation's an increased productivity story, as Warren Mosley talks about it. It's not a; it doesn't necessarily have to lead to unemployment. You know, it's it's the government response when 
because capitalism is disruptive. You know, let's take out automation. You know, capitalism is incentivizing people to lay people off. You know, if you can get the same productivity out of, you know, for like half the workforce, you're going to do it. You know, you're incentivized to do that as a, as a, as a business owner, you know, or that business gets more efficient, but then when half the workforce gets fired, the economy as a whole gets a a lot more inefficient because the government doesn't take up that slack for the people who want a job. And again, that's why the job guarantee is there to fix that problem. It's the, John Harvey calls it the fundamental flaw in capitalism, which is that labor is a cost to business and it's a cost to be minimized. So it's going to happen every time. So the kind of automation we're looking at now it's not. It's not new. You know, it's been with us since you know water mills. Um, if you let private sector employers define what a job is, then you've got this thing where, okay, only anything that makes a profit. You know, that's the only time the private sector hires. That's the only time capital hires when they can make a profit. And you know, the NHS wouldn't be there if. <laughs> do you know what I mean? If 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 we defined, you know, everything that's not that uh, yeah. uh, is not a job. It's not a worthwhile job because there's no profit in it. We wouldn't have an NHS. And I always bang on about the NHS because I think even right of centre people, are, you know, there's a way high approval rating for the NHS. So, you know, we, you or a standing army, you wouldn't have one of those either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you know, I, I just think we all. I think in this country compared to say the states where they still have to make the case that healthcare is a human right and stuff they they're still working on public opinion our public opinion's pretty well aligned that no, no this is how we want to do it this is the rational way to do healthcare mm-hmm. so i would that's why i was use the nhs i li- i like to uh, make a distinction of of what the market you know in in theory market is the best at allocating resources but i actually think the market is good at providing our immediate wants right um at, at you know you want this right now somebody's out there can make a profit they'll give it sell it to you but it's not very good at giving us what we need necessarily and it's not very good at thinking long term so as a result of that we are seeing you know we over rely on the market to provide for us in all aspects of our life then we're going to have a huge degradation of the environment as we're seeing so we need that long-term approach, which can only come with from communities getting together and actually deciding what is it that we need. Does it have the Rolling Stones playing in my head now, or is it the Rolling Stones? <laughs> What's that? You can't always get what you, you want. Get what you want but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you can get what you want. <laughs> Maybe you should put that at the beginning of the podcast uh, and get done by the copyright people. I don't know about that. Um, no, it is it is a good point you make, though. And I mean, I come at this from a perspective of, of climate science and climate politics that, that I'm intimately involved with. And, you know, one aspect of this that um, is, is the case is that there are certain sectors that we will not be able to decarbonize in, in a market efficient way, because it sort of comes down to the point of you are effectively having to clean up your rubbish that you're dumping into the atmosphere. Um and if it's not going to be possible to make it cheaper to do things the clean way, then you just have to insist that people clean up their rubbish. And yet our insistence in um, making sure that everything can exist in a, in a framework where profit is the only incentive that we consider and markets are the only thing we allow to deliver things means that you end up with people trying to make a case for how 
a business that just disposes of waste can be profitable. And, you know, unless people are willing to pay you the right amount of money to dispose of your waste, um, then it won't be. And that that would be something like a carbon tax, I suppose. And that's one way you could get around it. But then governments don't implement that. And so you think, well, you can't have things existing in this purely market-based structure if you want to solve some of these social problems, um, because you're, 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 you're not putting the proper, I mean, I suppose a, someone who is in favor of markets would say, you're not putting the proper prices and incentives on different uh, things, because as we all know, we don't live in a world where everyone has perfect information and perfect access to what they yeah. value. Uh, the You brought up the carbon tax there. It just made me think about uh, something that Randall Ray said when we had him on, which is, you know, that is the problem with the, you know, this, the whole idea of the taxes are collected in and then the government spends them out again. People then go, OK, so we're going to tax things that are, that we think are bad. Uh and then that'll fund, you know, the cleanup effort or something like that. And and he's going look a carbon a carbon tax that actually generates income has failed because people are putting carbon into the atmosphere. You know, if if you know if you're mm-hmm. if your spending plans uh, hinge on people putting, you know, paying to pollute, they're going to pollute. You know, and you need them to pollute to get the income to then spend. So you know, if you don't want carbon in the atmosphere outlaw it don't tax it you know and, and he goes look you know the market got us into this mess it's not going to be the solution yeah it, it you don't want to make the good dependent on the bad basically and um another thing i might mention is that i uh, as an engineer i i worked in a sustainability team and i've seen over the years um people make the case of how do we get to industry to to care more about the climate right how do we get greener buildings without regulation how do we get how do we get developers to invest in green technology you know and and it's i can tell you you know it's it's been decades of trying to to persuade uh, or find arguments that are based on if you're green you're going to make more profit because you're going to get more buyers interested and I tell you, it's a losing battle. It, you know, if if it is successful, it's, it's very rarely so. And it's not something that can make substantial change because the bottom line is always what matters. Um, the profit is what comes first. One thing that I think is interesting about MMT is that the caricature is that it's a sort of lefty excuse to print money and fund things that we can't afford. Um, but when you get into it, there are aspects of MMT that contradict a lot of liberal or left-wing values uh, about several different things. So, and this is sort of interesting coming from your show. I mean, one example is the importance of monetary sovereignty and being able to print your own currency for controlling your economy. So, you know, MMT per se might not really take a position on on Brexit. We probably have our own feelings about it. Um, the the departure of the UK from the European Union. But it would view the EU as problematic for a lot of countries in there because the EU has a single currency and therefore it's harder for them to, you know, each government isn't individually monetarily sovereign. And so it's sort of harder for them to agree on what they should do to get full employment across the different economies when when they all function differently. I mean, do you think do you think that's a fair comment on the sort of the importance of the monetary sovereignty because there'll be people listening to this all over the world and some of whom will say well hang on my government doesn't function like this it doesn't print its own currency so what what would we sort of say to that i think um 
I think MMT, well, first of all, MMT in itself doesn't have a position on the EU or on Brexit because, uh, and within the MMT community, you won't find necessarily kind of the same opinion from person to person. It's just that I guess the kind of understanding of monetary sovereignty and the kind of the role that government plays and the, the importance of being able to issue your own currency, but most of all for that issuing of currency to be under democratic control it becomes, it gets naturally a priority for a lot of the activists who are involved in spreading MMT. And and don't get me wrong, I mean, there are libertarians that for some reason as well have started their own kind of MMT narratives, but uh, but I don't think they fly very well generally. Um, but, uh, you know, the, it, most of the MMT supporters you'll find will be on the left and will be um, critical at the very least of, of EU positions and pri primarily of the eurozone for that basis but i mean it, th these are political positions if if you don't um consider these democratic issues to be so important then you you might not mind so much and there are certainly mmts who who uh, are pro eu and even pro euro um so you know it, it, and and who may have different ideas as to how to fix the eurozone and um but i think I think personally, I, I, about the left, I would say that there is a lot of misconceptions about how the Eurozone works. And I think that uh, an understanding of MMTA would certainly help kind of make a lot of these issues more transparent. Not so that people agree, but that simply people understand the true kind of dynamics within it. And you can apply that as well to... Um, to other other parts of the world and how and relationships within countries for example you can understand then what puerto rico not having its own currency does to puerto rico or what you know ecuador's decision to use the dollar and not its own currency does to ecuador or um or similarly the relationship within Af african countries and, and the eu itself you know um you then are able to see how these power dynamics work and how um, how some uh, relationships are more extractive and certainly how modern, you know, in, in certain aspects, how modern colonialism works and not, not to say the least in, in the influence of uh, America and the, uh, the um, dominance of the dollar in, in the world. The, the, all those things, if looked through a, an MMT lens, they can help you understand um, a lot of the issues and certainly help kind of map a route forward for a lot of countries and I think uh, there are that's why movements have spanned all over Europe um, about um, you know ways forward informed by MMT but also in Africa and also in Latin America and and we're seeing small groups kind of grow in India as well uh, grow uh, and and start demanding that um, you know for uh, campaigning for key policies, all informed under an MMT lens. And so the point we would be making here is that lots of these governments, for example, in Africa, aren't monetarily sovereign and depend instead on the dollar. And therefore, you know, if controlling the supply of dollars, which is what the Federal Reserve does um, <laughs> and gets a lot of stick for, um, um, is, is, is the thing to do, then that's being done in the interests of the American economy and not in the interests of these developing nation economies, who also hold debts denoted in dollars as well, which, which has caused them a lot of problems in the past. Yeah. So I, I personally had no idea, you know, why it mattered what, what currency 
a, a country um, um, borrowed in, whether it was dollars or their own local currency. I didn't know what difference it made. And by the looks of it, a lot of people don't know it because, uh, um, you know, um, Theresa May, a while back, um, it was attacking Jeremy Corbyn on, on the uh, Prime Minister's questions, uh, you know, uh, talking about the importance of decreasing the deficit. And she gave, as an example, Greece. She said, Greece shows what happens if you don't decrease the deficit. We all know what happens. And obviously, that's a, it's a dumb comparison. Greece's economy is nothing like ours. We issue our own currency and Greece doesn't. But she is relying, if she doesn't know it herself, which I presume she knows the difference, and by the looks on Jeremy Corbyn's face, I assume he did as well. But let's say that she does. She's still relying on a lot of people's ignorance on the matter, not to be able to tell what the difference is between those countries and that is the crucial thing and once you understand that difference then you're so much less easily scared by these kind of propositions so you know the way i put it is you know when the (coughs) euro nations the eurozone nations went into the euro they gave up their currency for a foreign currency all of them and so now they're currency users instead of currency issuers and the way i like to understand it is they put themselves in the position of like municipalities here in the UK, like Islington as a municipality can't create pounds. The central government can, but Islington can't. So Islington can run out of money. You know, it could sell bonds, you know, municipal bonds if it wants, but it, it could default on those bonds if it doesn't get the money. So in a way, they all became municipalities, but it's kind of worse than that because you know, at least all the municipalities in England, uh, there's a there's a culture binding us together. <laughs> you know, we all speak English. You, can, you know, and, and, and you know all kinds of things. Whereas, you know, the what's going on for the eurozone nations is they're all very different. They all need different things. And when when the euro was proposed, I'm sure it made a lot of sense. It's like, well, we've got one market. Let's have one currency. Uh, you know, it's going to cut out a lot of faff. But really, if you don't, what you need is, you know, one polity, one currency. Otherwise, you're going to be in all these kind of scrapes where you cannot, you, you, you don't actually have actual sovereignty if you don't have monetary sovereignty. You don't, you don't get to say how you want to tackle unemployment. And, and to that point, MMT is, um, I know we sort of intimated that it's kind of, you're probably going to find more MMTers on the left than on the right. But, um, you know, say Randall Ray, again, he's, you know, with the, he wrote the first MMT scholarly work, Understanding Modern Money. So he's like, the, you know, one of the primary MMT scholars. He, uh, he says, you know, look, MMT is consistent with a big government, it's consistent with a small government. And, you know, like I'm sure you've heard many uh, MMT people mm-hmm. say, you know, MMT is just a lens. But, you know, there, there's a prescriptive part, yes, but, you know, for the large part of it, MMT is just a lens. So, it, you know, it, it lets you understand why stuff is happening, and how governments spend and why they are taxing and all, all that kind of stuff that we've already gone over. And uh, when that when that sinks in for people, the next thing they go to is, oh, my God, we've got to constrain the government. <laughs> you know, it could run. And there is a constraint. It's called the budgeting <laughs> process. You know, you vote for a government because it's promised to spend on X, Y, and Z, and it's promised to like limit spending on on A, B, and C, and that's what's going to happen. That is the check on government spending. Democracy. You know, so when people go, oh, you know, I don't trust the government, 
Uh, you know, I've heard Randall Ray say it. You know, look, what they're actually saying, whether they know it or not, is we don't trust democracy. <laughs> um, so, so um, you know, so I, I, I'm a big believer, and that was one of the things that got me really excited about MMT. Like, this could really, you know, cross the left-right divide. You know, I would much rather be fighting with conservatives mm-hmm. that understood MMT about substantive things rather than whether or not the government can or has run out of money because you know once once all of us understand how the money system works then we get to have arguments about okay well what do you think is appropriate for the private sector to decide the the market mechanism to decide but what do we think well there's no point in, in it because i don't know um the national grid it's a natural monopoly public health it's a natural monopoly that there isn't there's no point in bringing you know competition is not going to make that service more responsive to the users of the service and you know we can have arguments about that you know which i think would be you know much more healthy for democracy and politics rather than this you know oh we're spending like a drunken sailor and we're going to become the next greece and like as patricia just said you know there's no way a monetarily sovereign country can become the next Greece. It, there is no such thing. Um, uh, we, you know, once you understand, mm-hmm. you know the um, uh, the way money works through the MMT lens. So, so I want to draw this out a little bit because you know I sure. I used to try and keep this show a little bit devoid of politics. I think yeah. ever since the coronavirus, it's become more difficult to do that um, because I think it's just it it and it's so clear to me that lots of the things that you know th- this show has never been completely devoid of politics because we talk about science and we talk about the history of science and unfortunately history and science are both politicized um, as is everything else at the moment and if people are to care about for example climate change and we had a whole series on existential risks we did a show on pandemics three years ago and um, talking about the prospects for a pandemic to possibly come along if people want these things to be sorted out there's always going to be an element of politics that's important to discuss and how these things intersect with society but given that this is now a little bit political um i think it's important to piss everyone off equally <laughs> so we, we we've talked about how mmt kind of blows up this narrative of um you, you uh you know the government has run out of money and we can't afford to pay nurses or uh buy this thing or do a green new deal or do uh, funding for the nhs because the government has run out of money um providing inflation is not a bar and you're willing to live with the inflation that you have now, there's no issue. Um, But of course, the other aspect from this taxes don't fund government spending uh, point is that it blows up some narratives that are popular on the left wing as well. Like the idea that we need to tax the rich more to fund the NHS. No, we don't. That's a choice. That's a tough one. That's a choice. And the the point is that the the taxation in an MMT point of view is serving to give value to the currency. That's the primary purpose. The secondary purpose is to get people to do stuff that the government wants them to do. So, you know, we tax smoking because we think smoking is bad and we tax alcohol because we think alcohol is bad. And in a society with a public healthcare system, you know, that's that's a political debate that you can have, whether, you know, this is something that you should do. Um, and th- so there's a sort of, and of course, then there's the redistributive aspect of this. Now, what I would always say to people, if they're concerned about the government using taxation as a mechanism of redistributing things, is that if we continue to live in a society based on economic growth, where we allow people to speculate on stocks and so on, you know, if you have a million dollars, you can pay yourself 70 grand a year for doing nothing. 
um, by investing it in the stock market or buying bonds or whatever. Um, The the redistributive aspect has got nothing to do with punishing people's success, but just stopping the inevitable nature of a system which will allow the the Gini coefficient to tend towards one and, and to have an unbelievably unequal society where you know, all of the, the wealth and power accumulates in a very small number of hands. And I think, again, it's it's about this getting the debate to a more substantive place where you're not saying, well, on one side, there's inequality and on the other side, there's communism or whatever. It's, it's more a case of mm. what level of inequality are you willing to tolerate? What level of inequality do you think is acceptable? But that becomes a secondary purpose yeah. of taxation. That, and we actually break the rhetorical link in MMT between the purpose of taxation that's trying to fend off inequality or get the government people to do things the government wants and incentivize things the government likes and disincentivize the things it doesn't like and the government provisioning itself and therefore the tax the rich to fund the NHS is well it's just two separate policies you can also justify deficit funded tax cuts from an MMT understanding of economics just fine as well yes yes in in a sense, you could say that that if if you if you think that the best system is for the private sector to employ most people, um, and I think we talked about why we personally don't think that. But if you do, then you could say that in a sense, from a right wing perspective, the the rate of tax that the government has is in a sense helping to create unemployment by taking too much money out of the private sector. Where where I would say that's faulty is that that assumes that the private sector will employ everyone if it has enough money, rather than just buying back its own shares, as we've seen it do, yeah. or I, investing that money in, in technology to automate away jobs. Um, but but again, you, you sort of... It depends where you MMT apply those tax lens. cuts. You know, yeah, you... MMT as a lens kind of blows up narratives that people like to use on all sides of politics. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, on the on the left in particular, I mean, this has been um, one of the big hurdles, I think, Um because uh, on well, we, we spend more of our, most of our time on the left, um, and uh, the discussions that we have uh, about the tax the role of taxation and the redistributive aspects of it is that people are quite over reliant on the on the notion that taxes fund government spending in order to justify taxing the rich, for example, and and I think and and. I think that that narrative actually doesn't serve them for that very well. Because if you say that uh, we need the taxes of the rich to fund government spending, what you're saying is that the government doesn't have any money of its own. And if the government doesn't have any money of its own, and if it's generally reliant on taxation to fund things, you're accepting the neoclassical narrative. And what you're saying is that you have to make sure that the cap, the, you know, that the private sector, the capitalists within it, are you know that you have their favor because if they leave um you can't collect the taxes that you need and so that narrative ultimately leads people to overestimate the importance of of well of the rich in the economy and they like to think of themselves as philanthropists and the ones that look out out for the rest of us um whereas the kind of the the MMT approach would um, actually make them irrelevant in that sense. And I think that if people let go of that, let go of the taxes fund government spending, and that's the only reason to fund it, to, to tax the rich, then they can start making arguments about, you know, as you say, inequality. And the, the principal reason to tax the rich is inequality. And 
um, if inequality is 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 the the ultimate is, is reducing inequality is the ultimate aim, then you know, sure taxation, but are there other means by which we can do that? And if we talk about we need to tax the rich, then as as we said before, it's like making the good dependent on the bad. We don't need to rely on you know, excessive profits are by itself inherently bad. It represents the exploitation of workers, in my view. Um, and so it, that's something that we don't want, <laughs> you know. And so taxation should discourage activities and not make public purpose dependent on on those bad activities. The, uh, the way um, MMT economist uh, Scott Fulweiler puts it, he goes, if you need the ultra-rich to fund your progressive policies, what you're saying is, you need there to always be the ultra rich, <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a sticky proposition. Yeah. And so, you know, again, what, what, what Randall Ray says is, look, we can always add income at the bottom is what we're saying. We're not dependent on the rich for that. So yeah, absolutely tax the rich because they're too rich. Good luck with that, you know, because they've got so much political influence. Doesn't matter, you know, you know what you do with tax rates, they'll find a loophole, they'll get exemptions written into the law and stuff. You know, I, I, I'm sorry to sound cynical about it, you know, I, and I am, like I, I keep quoting Randall Ray, I think that's kind of what he says, you know, what, what we can do is prevent the inequality in the first place through taxes, you know, like, you know, it's quite hard to claw it back off them once they've got it, but, you know, you could prevent the income in the first place. But, but you know, like you say, if you, if you make things dependent on, on taxing the rich, then, uh, you know, you, you <laughs> well, you know, you, both, both battles need fighting. I think I've said this before, both battles need fighting, you know, the, the rich need to be less rich. That is a battle that needs fighting. And, uh, you know, the, the people at the bottom really are dying if they don't get enough income. So I, I'm just saying that you, you know, that, yeah, you've got to break the link between the two. You know, let's fight those battles just on different days of the week. <laughs> they both need fighting. Uh, that's how I'd put it. But yeah, you're right. It does it does create a problem for the left in that, yeah, the right-wingers are right when they say, hey, you should lower taxes and that will stimulate business activity. You know, it will. You know, it, if you lower taxes on people that have got more money than they know what to do with because they've got, you know, offshored it and they're, you know, all kinds, of, that's not actually going to stimulate activity because those people aren't but they've spent all the money they're going to spend already um but yeah if you lower the taxes on the, you know people who are like struggling or not even struggling just on the average you know the medium income they'll spend that money you know if the uh you know and, and you know capitalism does it thrives on sales you know you don't you don't shrink your business when there's orders are going up you know the restaurant doesn't lay people off you know when when they're getting more and more bookings they you know they they open for longer and they employ extra staff and uh, you know expand so yeah if we if we think that's a an, an all right system then uh, yeah we should definitely be thinking about both sides of the taxation coin and then it sort of becomes a question as to whether you want to, an economy in a society where you know jeff bezos is employing thousands of people to be his footstool Versus an economy or society where the government is employing people yeah. to come and clean up your, you know, the the trash that's accumulating at the end of your street, you know, yeah. or anything else. Yeah. Um, Let's have that debate. Yeah. And, that, and, um, yeah and, and that's a debate that I think we can win quite easily, don't you think? I mean. Um... <laughs> yeah, there's not people, hordes of people in the street going, foot stool, foot stool. I really want that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so everything at the moment is unfolding in the context of COVID-19 and the crisis, the global economic depression that's occurring as a result of that. Um, the stock market may be going mad because people have money to put into assets or you know, we have a system that encourages people to speculate on stocks rather than saving money. Um, but unemployment is is spiking and continuing to spike. Um, at the same time, we know that there are looming crises uh, that the world has to deal with. In the West, we have aging populations, we have social care crises, we have mental health crises, we have a requirement to decarbonize rapidly to head off climate change, which will, regardless of whether you're interested in people's uh, quality of life or the livelihood that one can extract from the earth, that will be a limiting factor if you let it get to that point. And, you know, as, as we as we say this, uh, San Francisco has Blade Runner type skies from the wildfires that are going on there at the moment. You know, this is this is not a problem that is going to be solved uh, without some really serious effort. Um, we have other problems. We have growing income and wealth inequality between generations in, in countries and geographically around the country and, of course, around the world. In, in the Again, focusing on the UK and the US. In the UK, I think we're in an interesting political context. We're in a context where we've had 10 years of austerity. It's very unpopular. Um, it's seen as very unpopular. People are questioning the narrative there quite a bit. Um, we also have people saying, well, how are we going to pay for the expenditure during the coronavirus crisis? And this sort of, it may rear its head again, and that will be the next big political debate that's going to come here uh, once we've uh, resolved Brexit and, and the pandemic is sort of returning to a, a state of non-emergency. Um, in, in the US, I imagine that the Republican Party should should Trump lose re-election. Um, they won't. They will go back to being fiscal hawks, <laughs> even in light of the trillions of dollars they spent on tax cuts that was funded by expanding the deficit. Um, and Stephanie Kelton, who's who was uh, Sanders's economics advisor, I think, and whose book you, we've mentioned before, has criticised Joe Biden's policy advisors for talking about the cupboard being bare economically. So there's a question there as to whether Biden, in light of uh, perceived Trump mismanagement of the economy will uh, go to a policy of austerity. Um, but in both of the big societies uh, out there that, that we focus on, there's hope for political change. Um, and in light of this, you know, we have to come back to the Keynes quote right at the start of the episode that the ideas of economists and political philosophers, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, can be more powerful than is commonly believed that, in fact, the world is ruled by little else. And it's sort of a time when I think people will want to avoid business as usual and think of some bold new ideas and plans that can solve all of these problems. And the idea of MMT as a, a new deal, not just in the sense of economic stimulus to do things from government like FDR's new deal, but as an actual new deal a new social contract where you have this jobs guarantee and the role of the government, uh, it is seen that the government has a role, an obligation to find useful work for people to do and to allocate a greater share of the resources in terms of labour and material resources that are in society towards uh, work that is more socially useful and beneficial for everyone. That, that idea of the New Deal might be what's called for now. So how do you both view the prospects for MMT going forward? Do you think we're getting to a place where this is going to become a more mainstream understanding for economists um, and your, your own work, um, the people you speak to? How, how do you view the prospects for MMT uh, moving on from the situation we're in now? 
certainly something that you know is there's a lot to think about there i think if we look back at at how far we've come the mmt has you know it didn't start in the last five years it didn't start from 2008 it started before that you know the economists that that developed mmt predicted the financial crash among among and they're amongst the, the few economists that managed to do that so and ev- even then you know they had been ignored for quite some time and it's taken a, a lot of effort and i think if MMD has gotten anywhere, is to do, um, of course, with personalities like Stephanie Kelton and and Warren Mosler and Randall Ray and and the others who who are good communicators and who have been persistent over all these years, but also an army of kind of activists and people who became interested in economics purely because of MMT. And that's really how the word has spread out. And, and it's an imperfect process because obviously not everybody is born just knowing how to speak about economics and, and knowing everything about MMT. And MMT is vast. We've just scratched the surface here. But um, but I think uh, if if change is going to happen and and if our, our governments are going to accept all these things that you say about, you know, the role of the government in in uh, in creating employment and, and kind of pushing back on the idea that the market is the sole provider, um, then that's going to take a, kind of us hitting critical mass and having kind of from the bottom up pushing our politicians to do that. Um, I, I think uh, not even Bernie Sanders pushed on that narrative, even though he was for progressive politics. I think it's going to take a very long time for somebody from the top, you know, for that change to come from the top. And I think it's, it's going to be pushed from the bottom up. So, um I, I like to think that, you know, we, the way that things have been going, that we are going to, uh, um, you know, going to be exponentially better within the next uh, few years. But critically, you know, now that after COVID, I'm 100% sure this austerity narrative is going, is, is going to come back with a vengeance. And it it's already is, as you can see, but not just here, but also in Europe, potentially. You know, right now, European countries have been given a lot of freedom to spend. But I think at some point people are going to be pushing back because they're going to be pushing back against public purpose. And that's what the whole austerity narrative is about. Um, And we'll see what the impact of, you know, the advancements and people's knowledge of M&T has done in the last couple of decades to to actually push back on that. We a, a lot less people knew about M&T in 2008 than they know now. So uh, it remains to be seen. Could I just interject briefly, sorry, before you come in, Christine, and just say that one thing I want to make really clear to everyone is that I think we should trust the public to have this kind of debate and to deal with these kind of ideas and to, if you don't agree with MMT, you know, educate yourself about economics, listen to the MMT podcast that these guys host and, you know, go and, go and find it out and, and actually deal with these substantive ideas. I think there's there's a perception that people aren't interested or don't want to know or can't understand this stuff. And I think it's so patronizing. And I think we we see, and you guys will have seen in your efforts at communicating with people, that when people realize how relevant this stuff is to their lives, they do care and they do want to learn about it. And they do want to, you know, figure out whether this stuff is right and, and work out what the consequences would be for them and all this sort of thing. And I think we just have to trust people and say, they're smart enough to understand things if you give them the resources and the time and mental space and permission to learn about this stuff you know i think that's the cornerstone of a democracy kind of depends on that doesn't it is 
the ability to trust your citizens to make decisions. And that that's the perspective that I would look at your whole work from and, and what I'm trying to do with this episode, uh, exploring an issue that I think is really important for people to grapple with, even if they don't agree with anything we're saying here, to think about these issues in, in, in real terms and, and what, what they might mean, I think is really important. Um, I often say, uh, if I'm uh, talking to people, uh, you know, listen to our podcast because it's it's not just me rabbiting on, <laughs> you know, there's obviously Patricia who's like really smart, and, and also we're interviewing these these uh, you know we're we're interviewing the the a lot of the primary MMT scholars, and they are great communicators, as Patricia says, and and um, and they've been at it since the nineties as well. That's how far back it goes. It's a twenty five plus year, uh, twenty five years plus of uh, scholarly work gone into it. So there is always more to discover. But you know, I, I think yes, we should trust the people because you know, you look at it. Most adults learn to drive right 20 30 hours they learn to drive and there's real fatal consequences for messing that up but we, somehow we all seem to get there and i think this is you know yeah but you know you put a few hours into it you can understand central banking operations which then allows you to understand why QE didn't cause runaway inflation and um you know why it actually didn't really do anything it didn't, you know, it didn't expand the economy. It didn't really help. And uh, for instance, and, and but then, but more importantly, it helps you to understand how the money system works. It, it's the most potent institution in our lives, I think. You know, it, it really is. And once you understand that it's not a commodity and, and it shouldn't be a commodity, it shouldn't have the character of a commodity, that it is a policy tool. It's a utility you know it's a policy tool for for moving resources from the private sector into public sector use and because it is that because it is a technically it's a tax credit you know a five pound note is a five pound tax credit that's it guarantees you five pounds off your tax bill that's what it guarantees you but, but you know because of that it has all these other things you can do with it but once you understand that and where it comes from then you get to then go, okay, right, uh, you know, there, there are limits. You know, t- taxation is really, really important. It really is, like you say, it, it, it helps, you know, shape uh, the, the moral character of the economy in, in a way as well, taxation. Um, but, you know, once you, once you understand all these things, you can actually talk about politics in a substantive way rather than, the government's going to run out of money, the cupboard's bare, all these sort of household analogous things which have really been keeping us, keeping our our political aspirations tied up. You know, whether we're on the left of centre or the right of centre, you know, it really has, uh, you know, really limited our, uh, our, our ability to, uh, you know, achieve what we aspire to as a, as a people participating in a democracy so that that's the importance of it and um uh, yeah I, I i you know and that's that's how we ended up doing the podcast i think because um the politicians 
talk the way they do. They use the household analogy, the cupboard is bare, spending like a drunken sailor, drowning in debt. They use all those, all this household analogy stuff because it's the way we talk as an electorate. And it's not their job to change the culture. That Their job is to work with the culture and get votes and win elections. So they're not out there trying to you know, change people and, and educate them. And so the only way it's going to change is grassroots, as I see it. You know, also, it's the only thing I have to work with. I don't actually have any sort of elite connections. You know, I'm not going to be able to change anything <laughs> top down. So, you know, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, so, so that, that was, that's our whole effort, really. I think if I could speak for you as well, Patricia, <laughs> you know, I think yeah, that's, you know, sure. we, we are <laughs> saying, look, you know, you, you can understand this stuff. And, um, you know, and it, and it is really, really important. Um, but, but like you say, I, I think, you know, once people take a toe in the water and they hear somebody like Stephanie Kelton speak or read, you know, the first few pages of her book, you're going to be, wow, I, I'm hooked. You know, it, it really is. Th- these are people that want you to understand something. I, I am deeply like um, mistrusting of any academic, economists in particular, who um, kind of wish the masses would just go away, you know. And um, and I and I think a good economist, good economists want people to discuss economics. You know, they know how central it is to their lives, and they want people to understand things, like Christian says. So, of course, hypothetically. If my audience has listened to this and is interested, um, you all know what to do. You can go and listen to the Modern Monetary Theory podcast for explanations, not only of MMT 101, as we've discussed today, but also, of course, lots of other things about how inflation works, how government bonds work, how international trade works, all from an MMT perspective. Every time I listen to this, I learn something new about how this works and how people are theorizing about it and so on. And I think it's a a really awesome and important show that you guys have developed there as as a learning resource for people. It, it, it's 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 a good it's a good resource that you developed there. And if if this has piqued your interest, you know what here she'll miss um, your toil, she'll strive to mend, and all that sort of things. So the last thing I'd like to say is um, thanks both very much for being so generous with your time and uh, giving up your evening to talk to me about modern monetary theory. No, th- thank you, Thomas. Um, I appreciate enormously what you're doing here, and yeah, I think you're. You're one of the good ones. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Right back at you because you know it, it, you, you've done the hard work of building your audience, and you, you know, and and so we're just really we're grateful to you for having us. Well, you're very welcome. Um, come back and we'll talk about the economy sometime in the future. Love to. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. You can find the Modern Monetary Theory podcast wherever you're listening to this, and I really do recommend it if you want to hear much more about details on MMT directly from the economists who are working on this stuff. The podcast is on Twitter at MMT Podcast, where you can also find Christian and Patricia's own accounts if you want to follow them. They also have a Patreon like we do with bonus episodes, so check that out as well if you want even more stuff. And many thanks again to them for coming on the show. As for our show, we're on the web at physicspodcast.com. Any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to hear about, feedback for these episodes, which I know is a little outside what we often talk about, please do let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. And the contact form is there. It goes to my email. I try to respond to everything that people send. If you found this useful, you can support the show on PayPal. Any donations are gratefully received. And you can subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com slash physicalattraction where you will find many bonus episodes, including the complete SoftBank series, which goes out for seven episodes or so, 
and some Climate 201 episodes ahead of their general release, as well as some episodes that are only on the Patreon for subscribers there. Thanks to those of you who have done that already. All of the details alongside where to find us on social media are on that website at physicspodcast.com. Until next time then, please do take care. Thank you.